Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A looming general election, a party on the verge of a historic landslide, a leader with an iron-like grip on message discipline, waging war on complacency. Sound familiar? A new dawn has broken, has it not? Education, education and education. Tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. A politics of courage and honesty and trust. Welcome to Lessons in a Landslide, an exclusive Red Box podcast series to mark 20 years since New Labour swept to power. In previous episodes, I've spoken to the Labour's big beasts about life on the campaign. In this episode, I speak to those on the other side of the fence, the journalists from The Times of the time who reported on the battle buses the spin doctors the chickens the bulldogs and the gay lions they found on the campaign trail i'm delighted to be joined by philip webster formerly of uh, red box plus jill sherman and james landau welcome to you all okay so let's start then we're just where were you what was your job and what were you doing uh in the run-up to the 97 election let's start with you phil Uh, I was political editor of the Times. I'd been uh, political editor for four years by then. Uh, But the previous um, near two decades, my job had been to to lead on covering the Labour Party. So I had watched them through four periods of opposition. And this was the moment they finally escaped. You'd put in the hard yards. You'd got all those contacts suddenly came to something. uh, Labour Party in those days was based in Walworth Road. And I'd spent many days of my life in total standing outside Walworth Road waiting for the latest national executive disaster to happen. And they were happening all the time right until, you know, the sort of the period after 92 when the Tories started digging a very big hole for themselves. And Jill, what was your job then? Um, I was chief political correspondent at the Times. I'd been in the lobby for about four or five years before that. And was also doing the Labour beat, so it was very much deputy to Mr Webster, which was great fun. So I went out and about, obviously. I didn't go on the bus for the election, but I was in the office then, doing a lot of the kind of policy briefs and stuff like that, which I'm interested in. But I was, yeah, tasked to do Labour, I think, as soon as I went down to the lobby. That was my beat. And James, you were on the battle bus. 
Yeah, I was the I was the cub reporter. I was the young lad who <laughs> Phil sent out to all the uh, all the, the dog work. So I went to all the boring press conferences um, and filed lots of copy, and, and not much of it ever made the paper. I used to um, of it. Uh, yeah, 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 he used to he used to taken taken a few parts. Um, yeah, I it, and so I meant that I phys- physically had to go to all these all the ridiculous stunts that we had to do. Um, the the, the favourite thing I always remember in, in as this was before the campaign. There was a big thing. Um, one of the big slogans the Labour Party had was 22 Tory tax rises that they said had taken place under the previous regime. And th- I remember going to uh, Millbank Tower, the Labour Party headquarters, where they uh, they had a stunt of the day arranged by Peter Mandelson. And um, the stunt was they'd got a test your strength machine, right? One of those things with a hammer that you hit and then the thing goes up to test your strength. And, of course, the, the, the measure were the 22 Tory tax rises. And the sort of the, the gimmick was they'd got Britain's tallest man, some complete giant... <laughs> to come yes. on and do it. And, and so we watched solemnly as this man, and he was so big, he was very ungainly and could hardly hit anything um, as he did all this for the cameras. Um, and this was the era when the big gaffe was for a political party to use an actor or a, or a civilian uh, for part of their promotion, but then we discovered they voted for the other side. So, of course, um, inevitably, we wanted to ask this poor giant, um, uh, you know, who had it, how did he vote? Um, the Labour Party had cottoned on to this uh, and so they, t- so we all immediately went up and said, "Look, how do you vote like that?" But they tried to whisk him away. The trouble is getting rid of a bloke who's kind of sort of eight foot plus, Absolutely. staggering around. And so he, he whisked off. We all charged after him. There's a bit of a scrum. Um, and then after, I've never seen Peter Mandelson so angry. He was screaming and shouting at the entire pack. Um, he accused me of being um, a member of the Conserv- Federation of Conservative Students as a result of me. Um, and he then put in a formal complaint to the Times. Fully remember this. I do. Um, but that I have to say, the people who actually put in the, the complaint were, were slightly um, embarrassed by having <laughs> to do it. Um, uh, and and um, said, said that I had somehow um, shoulder-barged a member of staff, which was totally untrue. But that was the madness of the era. Yeah, talking about stunts that didn't quite come off, the Tory party at the time was in total disarray and they got this lion uh, that they, they they campaigned with a lion. Uh, they used it as a symbol, the symbol of the lion, and the, the pit, they, they used this picture of a lion in all kinds of um, broadcasts and things. And uh, one of our colleagues, who's not here today but who was with us, discovered that the lion was gay. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> the other animal... Was um, uh, the Labour Party got a, a bulldog oh, called, course, called yeah. Buster, uh, who was there to, which they used for some of their promotional material, which was designed to sort of show how patriotic they were. Because, of course, sort of foreign affairs was always seen as one of Labour's weak points, and they wanted to try and sort of tickle that up. So Peter Manson arranged for this this dog uh, to be photographed, um, but it subsequently turned out that the, um, the the nether regions of this dog had been airbrushed out <laughs> for fear of offending the voters. Yeah. Yes. Um, which caused a bit of fun. But it was a very serious election. It does sound like <laughs> we don't get. Why is it we don't get stunts like that anymore? Because they because they, they go they, wrong. They, they so just, often you, went you've wrong. Just, you've you know, told us why. We, we've had people turning up with chickens at press conferences, haven't we? To uh, to try and portray the uh, people holding the press conference as, as chickens, and they, that, that that always went wrong. It always rebounded. Uh, but on the on the election itself, the thing that looking back on it now and covering for all that period, was the amazing caution that Labour showed in the run-up. Uh, what, what, you, what people forget is that both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown had been in Parliament for 14 years. They both came in in 83. They'd had 14 years of opposition. Neither of them were suited for opposition. They were both just interested in government. They'd had all this time to wait. And although 
everyone in the press, everyone in the public knew that Labour was heading towards a certain victory. The people who seemed least convinced of that was Labour themselves. So we had this amazing caution over policy. The, the great um, business on within 12 hours, uh, Labour had leaked to me on a Sunday that they were going to stick to uh, two years of Tory spending policies, uh, which the Times ran as a splash on the Monday morning. Gordon Brown went on to the Today programme the next morning to talk about the Times splash and announced on the Today programme that also they would not, for the next Parliament, be putting up the basic rate or top rate of tax. So we had that in 12 hours. Utter caution, utter unnecessary caution. Ken Clark, who had been the uh, the, lay, uh, the Tory Chancellor has since said many times that he wouldn't have even stuck to his own spending <laughs> policies had they won the election in 97. So there was Labour hamstrung for two years on Tory spending policies that the Chancellor of that time would not even have stuck with himself. George, do you, do you think that's because they were so scarred by that long period of opposition? They felt they had to address every, tie, every perceived weakness of the Labour Party, despite the conditions meeting, they would probably won it even if they hadn't made those promises. Yes, I think so. And I think that they were also trying to play to several galleries at the same time. So they wanted to play to the wider public by trying to appear more Tory than the Tories. And they were also trying to play to their own party. And I think they always found that difficult, always in the run-up for the, sort of the year before, the year after. They were continually flying kites for this policy, that policy, and then somebody would bat it down. Gordon Brown would want something on, you know, benefit spending. Blair would bat it down. And it was always because they were playing to two audiences, and I think that was always a problem for them. And it was about this time that they stopped telling each other what they were about to announce as well. So that you, the, the, the tension that uh, one reason, I think, for the tension between the two, and it, it kept, went on to be the, the, the TBGBs, and it lasted virtually until Blair went in, uh, in 2007, was the fact that they had waited for so long. I think that had a, a, a big part in it. And, of course, the, the factor that we haven't mentioned was uh, uh, both Brown and Blair, after 92, were deeply impatient they didn't think that John Smith, who was Labour leader at the time, was pushing reform fast enough. I remember a dinner with Blair. Uh, it was myself and Peter Riddle and Blair at Brighton in, in 93. He gave us the distinct impression that he wouldn't be hanging about for long it, unless Smith got on with the, with the reform. And, of course, sadly, John Smith died the following year and Blair was left to get on with it himself. But that was very much a factor as well. I had a Peter Mandelson complaint about that. Even though we're not allowed to talk about lobby lunches, do you think we can from that era? Of course we can. I think, yeah, it's long enough ago now. What's he going to do now? So I I had lunch with Peter Mandelson. He told me fairly and squarely that he thought John Smith should be... This was before, obviously, John Smith died. ..should should be doing much more on the doorstep about spelling out what Labour was going to do about modernising the party, etc. And then there were two articles, I think, in The New Statesman, one of which was, I can't remember who one was and Peter was the other, and he told me basically what he was going to write in the article. Then I put that in the paper, including some of the quotes from the article, with the spin that, you know, they wanted to push John Smith to do more. God, hell broke out. And Mandelson complained to Peter Riddle, Phil Webster and the Editor of the Times and said the whole thing was rubbish. Were we going to publish a letter in the Times? I think... 
Peter Stoddard said no. Phil said I should talk to Peter Mandelson on the phone and not exactly apologise, but find out what he had to say. As soon as I phoned up Peter, he sort of said, oh, no problem, no problem. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually seen to be As we've sort of got on to it, what the sort of the, the outside impression of the new Labour media machine is this sort of rigidly driven, obsessive, controlling... Uh, was it was it like that to deal with? Yeah, I mean, yes. one one myth, though, is that spin began in '94 when Blair took over. I mean, uh, we had Tory press officers. Bernard Ingham was was a master of spin in many ways. The man who accused uh, John Biffin of being a semi-detached member of the cabinet in a lobby meeting and got away with it at the time. So uh, it didn't start then. But yes, Mandelson was the man with the message. Mandelson was the man with the red rose. Mandelson was the man who came up with new labour, new life for Britain, and that was that became the mantra. And then when Alistair Campbell took over, running uh, Blair's machine in 94, that's when the discipline came in, making sure, trying to make sure that they all came out with the same message. And on getting into government in 97... I think that's right, uh, he set up what was called the Strategic Communications Unit and the whole idea was that across the ministries people were supposed to be saying the same thing. Yeah. But I'm a f he forgot to tell the Treasury. Or they, <laughs> or they certainly um, they did their own thing very much, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Well, just to sort of give you a sense of, of how it operated um, as, as a machine... Um, obviously, this was a, a different age technologically, and most of the material came in over faxes. There were no, you know, there's there no internet. The Labour Party would uh, ha have a very efficient network of people around the party who would scour the local papers, find an example of a Tory candidate saying something daft. Um, that would be sent in to Millbank Tower. Then Millbank Tower would build a database of that, and then just selectively and slowly but surely leak these out not all in one go very carefully and so I would have somebody from Bourbon say James I'm going to fax you something over it's rather good um, and then you'd have a row now the, the, in those days the rows happened much more slowly these days, it, it's, it's, it, it pops up on Twitter and it, it's, it's over in a matter of minutes um, in terms of the, 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 the counterfactuals and the rebuttal of the rebuttal and all the rest. In those days, it, it, it took a longer period of time. Mm. Um, and um, so a lot of those stories, um, you know, would, would fill a lot of the space during the campaign that otherwise was filled with a fairly anodyne policy debate that, because there wasn't a policy debate during the campaign. So it ended up being filled with quite a lot of sort of, you know, st you know candidates saying daft. But the Labour machine was far better at it yeah. than the Tory machine was. And that's now become the template for well, certainly what journalists see as a good machine. You know, At the moment, there's a big... Uh, there seems to be a feeling that the Lib Dem press office is doing actually a, a terrifically good job at doing that stuff. The FOI requests and the... Have you seen what yeah. so-and-so's done? You know, and it's, I mean, the Tories were pretty sloppy just in the period before, weren't they, before New Labour? Oh, and they were God. at each other's throats the whole time. <laughs> yeah. They didn't mind which journalists they told what the journalists said pretty well. And so I think, you know, Alistair was very, very keen to stop all that. And we yeah. would get yeah. calls saying, are you, are you, how are you guys looking for Sunday? Do you need a Sunday for Monday? Um, we've got a little bit of, you know, some uh, some parliamentary questions we've got. We could say this showing X or Y, like, um, sort of sort of un unknown people like Steve Byers and Alan, Alan Milburn, that like, would be, be the vehicles for that sort of yeah. sort of yeah, that, yeah. that sort yeah. of activity. They, they were they. I mean, I, Alistair, as a former journalist, knew that if if you didn't fill the gap, we would somehow. And mm. I think his the orders that he sent out to uh, the special advisers and the press people was. 
give them stuff, give them stories, um, create stories. And it became quite wearing. I mean, I, I, there was a time when even on a, on a rare Sunday off, I might have played a round of golf in the morning, <laughs> but I might then spend about four hours sitting in my car in the golf club car park, um, having received a, a phone call from Alistair Campbell or, or someone like him, following up uh, on a story that they were proposing to run the next day. Um, and you, you were talking about how it became the template. I mean, it was the template, really, for, um, for the Tories when they finally got back in in 2010. And you've seen, seen all over the place how Osborne and Cameron regarded Blair and the team around him as pretty masterful at this kind of stuff. And, and, and it has carried on since then. They introduced the grid, didn't they? The Downing Street grid. I think Absolutely. that was, that was Alistair, yeah. which has been kept, kept going ever since. Yeah. The yeah. one thing that hasn't sort of travelled well in time is that in those days, the, the sort of um, uh, monoglot single answer to whatever question a journalist would answer would, would ask in those days it was almost acceptable to sort of do that it was seen as sort of solid good discipline control these days I think the audience is more sophisticated and, used to, and, and sees through it and says sorry hang on you've got to answer the question in those days you could, you could ask them you know what, what colour the sky is and they'd still tell you that it's, you know, they're tough on crime and tough on the course <laughs> yes. and it's that yeah. thing about the, the sound everybody knows what a sound bite is now yeah, you know the public, the voters do. They completely get. Oh, I see what you're doing there. You're not answering the question, or you're, you know. Mm. Um, the soundbite was most associated with Alistair Campbell. I think. Yeah. I think people, yeah. uh, whether he invented it or not, people will credit him with the. Uh, or blame and, him for the invention of the soundbite. Of course, um, in the election, this was the election that invented Battle Bus Bingo. When we got all, well, what we'd do is we'd get, um, we'd write down all Tony Blair's stock phrases. So tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, new Labour, new Britain, um, the many, not the few, etc., etc. And, and put, write them on a piece of paper, put them in a hat. And every morning we'd put a quid in the hat, all the, all the journalists on the, on the bus. And then you'd pick out three pieces of paper. You'd have your three pieces. And then at all the many events and speeches and chats and discussions had, Basically, you'd tick them off every time Tony Blair said it. And then when he said your third one and you were the winner, you had, the only way you had to win was you had to stand up, even if it was in the middle of a press conference or a speech or anything, and shout, House! <laughs> <laughs> and then, and, and after a bit, um, we, and when, when we were find, occasionally allowed to actually have some communication with the candidate, we, we, would, we would go on. Um, Tony Blair once asked me, he said, he said, James, I saw you stand up in the middle of my speech. That I, I didn't, what was going on? Were you trying to ask me a question? I said, no, we were just playing Battle Pass Pingu. And I've <laughs> never seen anybody look so sort of distraught, disappointed, depressed. Because it, uh, you're just picking up on Phil's point, he was petrified with nerves that he yeah. was carrying this Ming vase almost across the line. Uh, that was, yeah. And yeah. we were sitting down so bored because he was not giving <laughs> us any stories. And he said the same thing five times a day. And he couldn't believe that we were being so trivial at a time for him. You, was you weren't taking important. it as seriously as he was. Perhaps not. So on the last... Uh, on the, just to emphasise that again, on the last night before Labour were elected, so on the Wednesday night, polling day was on Thursday, May the 1st, ninety seven. I'm writing up the splash um, in the Times office, and the phone goes, my phone, and it's um, it's Alistair Campbell, and he's calling from Sedgefield. He's calling from Tony Blair's constituency home, where Blair had gone to be there to vote the next morning. And he'd rung to see what our Mori poll was saying, which we were splashing on on the Thursday morning, and this was this is, this still goes on, and it happened then. So without giving him the figures, I just said, look, you know as well as I do, you're heading for a landslide. 
and uh, I heard some sort of grumpy noise from beside him and, and Alice said to me can you talk to him and he puts Blair on and Tony Blair comes on the phone to me and says um, Phil what's all this about you writing we're going to get a landslide I said well you know you're going to get a landslide uh, our poll suggests you're going to get a landslide and I bet every other poll in the land is suggesting that but if you, if you, put, if you put that in the paper tomorrow nobody's going to come and vote are they uh, this was Blair on the night before. That was that was that showed the nerves. And I said, "Look, come on, don't be silly. Um, <laughs> it's not going to change anything at all." And uh, papers are going to run their polls in the morning. And uh, and he he was he was he was very very grumpy. Even at that point, he couldn't bring himself to accept. And uh, Alistair grabbed the phone back off him and said, "Oh, I'm sorry about that. You know, but you know what he's like." Can you remember how the poll compared to what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, amazing. I did, if I told him what the poll actually would have said, he, he would have gone ballistic because the poll pointed to a victory for a Labour of 180 seats, 180-seat wow. majority, and it wasn't too far off. Um, Labour, just to bring things back to the present day, Labour that day ended up with 418 seats. If today's Labour Party end up with half of that, They'll, they'll, they'll feel themselves pretty lucky. And that's the difference between 97 and now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It does seem like a long... I mean, it doesn't seem like a particularly long time ago for the Labour Party. Just what we want um, Alistair Campbell and the relationship between him and the press. Looking back through his memoirs, Phil, you crop up either he's very pleased that a story that he's given you has landed well, or you've gone and ruined everything because you've written something which has thrown the grid up into the air. What what was that dynamic like? I had a good relationship with him. I suppose, uh, with, uh, the, I suppose the thing that helped me in my job was that I had... I would say equally good relations with the Blair camp and the Brown camp, and uh, it's for my colleagues to um, yeah. <laughs> back me on that. But yeah. I did, and um, and uh, I never would ever go to the other side and say they're saying they're being nasty about you, they're saying you're flawed or whatever. This that or the other. You would you would have to deal with them separately, 
and both sides knew that. So if if I was getting a story from the Brown camp, I wouldn't immediately go running to the Blair camp and say, I've just got this from Gordon, you know, and the other way around. And I think they, they knew that I'd treated them almost as, as separate entities. <laughs> separate it was very weird, which was why, uh, as you say, Alistair would, might be quite happy if one of those golf club Sunday morning stories had come off. He'd be equally unhappy uh, to see me running a story one of Brown's team, say Charlie Whelan, might yeah. have just slipped to me um, the, the previous night, that a, a story that, of which he knew nothing. Do you think at any point the, the relationship between the media and the new Labour opposition got operation became too close? It was certainly perceived as such by other parts of the political media. Um, and I think it was felt because of the relationship that um, Blair had with News International at that time that we were always treated with a with a certain amount of um, suspicion, jealousy, envy by other parts of the of the political media. But I think as a political journalist, you have to get it as close as you can. The, you you've got to get the stories. You've got to get the stories. You've right? got to get the stories, and how you get them, you know, nobody's going to have an inquest how you got them the next day. I just wanted to add, I always thought Phil tried to get me to do all the bad stories about Labour. <laughs> <laughs> I always got the difficult ones. Good, I got out of screaming story here down for you, the phone. Yes. <laughs> well, you did them very well, Joe. I mean, <laughs> you somebody, had to, somebody had to take the rap. Uh, despite the uh, nervousness about complacency within the Labour camp, uh, given that you'd covered the Labour Party for a long time, at what point did you think they're quite obviously going to win the next election? Probably is as soon as Tony Blair took over. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That was the, the, the sort of sealed the deal. The, I think so, because, I mean, Major was doing pretty badly anyway. And I think, you know, it's, um, Connect was pretty unlucky, really, not to get in 1992. And I think as soon as Blair took over in 94, the whole mood changed, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, really... I think we felt that Smith would, would have won, yeah, but he, he was applying the one last heave approach. And, and that was what... Uh, Peter Mandelson, Brown, Blair didn't like. They didn't like the idea. They, they, they felt you've got to go, go full-throated for reform. Um, but, yeah, I agree. Um, the, the, I think Blair would have won, Brown would have won, um, and Smith would have won, but Blair was the one. Blair was the one who was always going to uh, appeal more to Middle England, and that was the reason they were able to get seats in the South. Uh, and it was pretty obvious yeah. in '94 that he should be the candidate, despite the... The battle he had with Brown at the time. James, I wanted to ask you. There's a terrific Twitter account called New Dawn 1997, which is, I think, it's been run by some students, but it's sort of chronicling newspaper coverage of the campaigns that were false. And your name keeps cropping up. So you know, the reason I thought of it was one of the stories that you'd written was about this huge influx of women that was coming into the parliament, which was a real novelty. It was a you know now you wouldn't get as much space being given over to papers, but that was a big that was a big deal at the time. And it was particularly because actually when the result happened mm. um, and because Labour won more than expected, an awful lot of paper candidates for Labour um, who happened to be women got into Parliament. And so there was this huge new influx. Um, and, um, you know, in, in a way that I think these days would not be acceptable. But in those days, they were then referred to as Blair's Babes, yeah. particularly because there was an iconic photograph of Tony Blair surrounded by them all. And what was really interesting is that some of them went on to flourish. Others... Um, fell by the wayside actually quite quickly because they just found the whole process of politics just sort of completely it was it was well, if you did, not prepared for it if you'd stood as a candidate sort of out of politeness uh, yeah. not expecting to win and you'd just been swept along with this 
sort of tidal wave. It's one of the great sort of things that people always forget about that because there were so many new Labour MPs and a lot, a lot of them were kind of councillors who'd sort of been told, look, can you just put your name forward? And they, and they suddenly came in and um, they got quite quickly quite fed up with just being little more than lobby fodder because a lot of them, particularly if they're lawyers or you know councillors who had executive jobs where they actually took decisions, <laughs> and now they just did what they were told by Peter Mandelson, and and and, and they found it a lot of them I think very very hard that initial period. Um, but there was no I, we did a lot of work about how the sort of social structure of Parliament was going to change. I mean the other side of the coin was I, I, Phil got me over the summer afterwards after the election to ring round every single. Single Tory MP who'd lost his seat, and I became a sort of ro- a roving agony uncle <laughs> um, to a lot of these very, very depressed men um, who kept on asking me, you know, how can I get a job? Um, yeah. And they got some pretty strange jobs, and I have to say, one or two of them ended up in pretty sad, sad ways um, because for them it was just they'd, they'd lost, you know, the, the, their entire sort of way of life. Um, yeah. It wasn't just a job because they'd been in power for so long, and so you had this sort of counterpoint with the sort of the new Labour sort of uncertainty. And the utter depression of, of the MPs who'd, who'd uh, lost their seats. Jill, one of the other aspects was there were so many of them, the prospect of promotion or doing anything more interesting than just being lobby fodder were, were minimal if you were a new MP. I was going to say, as a lobby correspondent, I was one of a, a handful of women then, and there were probably about three of us. So it was quite a difficult place to operate. It was very chauvinistic. And um, although I think people maybe expect us to flirt with the MPs, obviously... I wasn't going to do that. I was a very sort of feminist type, you know, journalist. And I remember Phil saying to me, it'd be quite good if you could talk to them about football or golf before you kind of go into your, you know, questions. And I was thinking, tennis, maybe? So did, so did your job become different or easier? It's just made us operando coming out to this. <laughs> so he didn't do any bad stories about that. He got you to phone all of the press toys and then you had to speak to everyone about golf. <laughs> <laughs> when all the when there was this big change in the makeup of pop, did that change? Did your because you weren't just speaking to sort of dusty old Tory men. I still felt it was a very chauvinistic. Yeah. I think all the women in that in that era, the 1997 women, had to adapt to that, and they didn't like it. But they had to adapt to it. It took yeah. ages for the hours to change, for the whole sort of flexibility of working to change. I mean, it took yeah. another. It was Robin Cook. Becoming leader of the house, years, they, they, really. They, they, yeah. they, they, they really modernised. Yeah. The, there were endless yeah. debates yeah. about whether or not um, the House of Commons shooting range downstairs was going to be turned into a creche. And I remember going down there yeah, once God, with yes. with some Labour MP, female Labour MPs like that, and they went down there and, and they realised just how smelly and damp and horrible the whole place <laughs> was. And the idea that this would be a suitable place for children was um, not appropriate. And, and the question, in fact, oh, there is now a question part. It was only opened in the last sort of three or four years. It's sort of that 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 took that long. I know. If you go on a sort of unofficial tour around Parliament, I've had this so many times, people take you around Parliament, and they always point out the machine on the wall which dispenses tights, which was installed in 1997, because really? cause that's what the ladies want, obviously. It's a machine to uh, dispense um, tights. Uh, before we uh, finish up, I suppose we should draw... Uh, we should look at where we are now 20 years later in the Labour Party. And, um, you know, there are people who say, is it completely finished or, you know... It, it's been in bad ways before. Can it come back? What, what do you think, Phil? Well, I'm, it's in a, in a worse state than it has ever been. Um, uh, Neil Kinnock's um, great gift to the Labour Party was was to make it electable again, but uh, he couldn't get in in 92. But he spent the whole of, uh, from 83 to 92, trying to hold off the forces 
that are now in control of the Labour Party machine. And uh, we, we all know that uh, they, were, they were handed the keys to the door. They didn't even have to fight for it in, in, in 2015. And until the membership of the Labour Party changes, I, I don't see any, any hope of Labour returning to power because uh, the membership of the Labour Party, which has gone up 70%, since 2015, so it tells you the kind of membership. It's it's a membership that came in to support Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who was not relevant for most of the 40 years that I was involved. <laughs> he was totally irrelevant, yeah. really, uh, politician. And uh, he happens now to be running our main opposition party. Um, and with the membership as it is, uh, even if Jeremy were to go in the next uh, 18 months, which I think is quite possible. The the chances of the of today's Labour Party picking a Labour leader who who would be in tune with the British public, I think, is pretty low. So, as of now, uh, the Labour need its membership to fall. It, it we've started seen bits, to fall, but there's a long when you've got, got half a, a lot, million. There's a long it's way. It's got to a go. long way to fall before you get back to the level of membership and the kind of membership that that would go for a an election winner. James, did you uh, see a lot of Jeremy Corbyn on your battle bus tours in '97? Presumably, were you even aware of him existing as a as a political force? Yes, but um, the only reason he ever sort of entered my consciousness was um, when he did things with uh, Sinn Fein, because that became a sort of you know, and he yeah. was, um, uh, and and he was yeah, so he he was part of a you know. A con- bit of the Labour Party occasionally you'd have to kind of you know engage with but not but not that often because it was so not mainstream in those days um I mean just going back to Phil's original point that we began with Tony Blair was in Parliament from 83 to 97 before Labour returned to power um you know these things do change and the wheel does turn but it does take a long time and I think you know for Labour they're facing a long time um you know before the wheel you know may turn so finally, before we finish, how many times do you all think you've heard things can only get better during that campaign? Was it played at every <laughs> event thousands that you of went times? To? Yes. Oh, it was I, I, I won't test you by saying uh, if you know all the words. I have. Um, I have heard it. Um, I've, 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 I've sung it to myself. I have hummed it. I have murmured it in my bath. I've, I've, I've sung it with Heather Small in a bar. Um, on some Labour tour when wow. she she was doing it um, with um, because we, and then I've sat in the back of the bus with D Ream when they because oh, they came oh, when they actually came oh, on the ones like that. Oh, right. um, uh, so I with feel Brian I've, Cox, Professor Brian Cox. I, well, I, I fear I didn't know him as such <laughs> in those in those days, but you know, would that I should. I would have you know sort of um, engaged more closely. Um, but so yeah, I feel I've yeah I feel I've I've heard the song enough. Um, so we're not going to play it again now. It is still no, it is still played at yeah. um, at Labour parties. Is it? But it's uh, now a events. sort of sign of defiance, isn't it? They yes. sort of put it on when Jeremy yeah. comes into discos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, no, uh, it, it's uh, it's um, it, it's it's still out there. The thing the thing that we forget from that whole campaign, that whole era, was that actually there was a huge amount of passion involved in it. Even from the electorate's point of view, where, where almost regardless of where people were politically there was a sense that the country wanted a change yeah. just because they'd had the same lot for a long time. And, and I can remember just the, the, the sense of, yeah, it, 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 you know, the, we, we joke now about the phrase time for a change and, you know, the, are you the change candidate, etc. cetera, all the isolation. But in those days, it was a genuine sense that, that that's one of the reasons why so many voters voted was they just wanted change. And I can remember um, just 
you know, random strangers coming up and sort of hugging me, um, you know, because they were so excited about this thing. And I, I don't think we've we've had anybody win an election since with that scale of of hope, because now it yeah. tends to be the least worst yeah, so of the on candidates. Balance, you're marginally better. Yeah. Than the other whereas one. in yeah. those days there was a genuine yeah. sense of hope, uh, and I say that in a purely non-partisan sense, just of. You know, they'd had, you know, all the allegations about Tory sleaze. Yeah, they'd the had economic, the You know, they'd, they'd had the economic um, problems. Um, they'd had the sense of just a sort of, you know, and it was, a, you know, a, 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 gov- a government that was fighting amongst itself. Um, again, separate from any of the politics, there was just that sense. And I, I don't think anything since then has mirrored it. No, it's, it's hard to overestimate the extent to which the Tories had become a laugh- laughing stock in those last few years. Um, uh, quite apart from the economic disaster that over the ERM, some bright spark had the great idea of, of trying to revive the Tories with a campaign called Back to Basics. <laughs> at which point, which, at which the- point, you know, ministers... Conservative ministers, senior backbenchers, all started getting into all kinds of yes. financial and uh, other um, sexual trouble, and there were all kinds of stories. One, there was, it was there was a story a week, um, you know, people getting up to all kinds of strange things. And uh, <laughs> well, there was there was one MP who um, had to admit to um, sleeping with a, another bloke at a, on a, while on a rugby tour. Um, and that became quite a big story. He was an MP, and that became quite a big story at the time. Um, that, that that was almost par for the course. That uh, we 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 just waited for the next yeah. Sunday there Sunday was, paper to see what was going to happen a, next. There was a there was a labour machine ready to exploit every single one yeah. to the yeah. nth yeah. degree. One yeah. of our colleagues on the Times in those days had a a key on his computer keyboard. It's called a save get key on the old <laughs> system in which you could save a few stock phrases or a sentence. And on his one of his save gets, he had an intro that began, John Major last night suffered a fresh blow after dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just press that and, 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 and away he'd go. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, I think we'll leave it there. James Landale, Philip Webster, Jill Sherman. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Boxes series, Lessons in a Landslide. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes using iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning Red Box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.